John chapter 12, if you turn over there, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. John sets the stage for the Passover week when he says these words. Jesus, John 12, 1, therefore six days before the Passover, many mark this as the Saturday before the Passover, came to Bethany, that's just outside Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, Jesus had done... Uh, many miracles, and people were hearing talk of Jesus as he was ministering largely in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and he was opening the eyes of blind people, touching deaf ears, unstopping deaf ears. He was touching lepers. He was hushing the sea. He had raised the dead. He had raised a little girl from the dead. He had raised a young man who was walking by, or he wasn't walking by. His family was walking by. He was in a casket. You guys all heard that the guy who wrote the song, Hokey Pokey, uh, he passed away not too long ago. Did you hear that? They had a funeral service. Literally, he did pass away. And he, he wrote that song. And, and they had the casket there. And they were putting him in the casket. And they put his right foot in. And that's where all the problems began. That was an attempt at humor. Apparently, uh, not so great a one. Right foot in. You take your right foot. Anyway, never mind. That wasn't even planned. But... So he had done incredible miracles, but the miracle of miracles was Lazarus was in the tomb how many days? Four days. And Jesus said, roll the stone away, and then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who had been in those grave clothes, came out of the grave, and he was alive again. And it was an amazing miracle at the tail end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and the city was abuzz, and people had seen this. And now he even calls to the other side of the grave and get it, gets an answer. Who can this one be? This is the one that says, in me is life. I have the power even, I have the power to call to the dead, and they will hear the voice of the Son of God and arise. And some will rise to a resurrection of life, and others to a resurrection of condemnation. Uh, Lazarus is a foretaste of what is to come on the day of resurrection when Jesus calls into the tombs and into the graves and people will come forth. And scholars have mentioned that it's a good thing that Jesus said Lazarus come forth because if he wouldn't have named Lazarus his name, a bunch of people would have come out of their tombs. That would have been the stuff of a movie, right? <laughs> oh, whoa! Peter's eyes were just this big just over Lazarus coming out of the grave, right? And then I love Jesus. He says, unbind him and give him something to eat. I love the Lord's priorities. Right away, give him something to eat. Praise God. That's just so awesome. And so now Jesus has done this miracle. It is an incredible miracle. It's showing his power over life and death. It's revealing who he is. The city has come to a fever pitch because it's the Passover. Josephus, who was a Roman Jewish historian of the time, says that Jerusalem would swell to over 2 million people during the Passover season. That's an incredible number of people in a small city. We were in Israel a year ago. We went to Jerusalem, and our guide was telling us that the population of Jerusalem today, it's the largest population of all the cities in Israel, and it's nearly 1 million people. I looked it up. The statistic says 850,000 people. When you see the city of Jerusalem, it is pretty small for all those people to pack in there. Well, three times a year, God required that all able-bodied Jewish males would come for feasts. And so people would make pilgrimages from all different lands, distant lands. 
And they would come for the Passover in the spring. That's the season that we're in now. And they would come to honor God, and they would stay in the outskirts of the city, or they would, they would stay there right there in Jerusalem. And Jesus had just done this incredible miracle. People had been reading the book of Daniel. They had messianic expectations. And now Jesus, you know, imagine that you were in Jerusalem and you heard talk of this uh, Galilean carpenter who's doing incredible miracles. Now maybe you followed for a few days and you saw Lazarus come out of a tomb. You have to be thinking, this is the Messiah. Who else could he be? The city was stirred just by Jesus' presence, but also by this miracle. If you go back to John 11 and look at verse 46, we get a little backdrop. It says, actually go to 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him, 1146. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the chief priests were largely Sadducees, convened a council. That's what they did all the time when they didn't know what to do. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will what? Believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, you can see their main concern. Their main concern is about their place and their nation. Not the fact that Jesus could well be the Messiah, the long-anticipated Savior of Israel and Savior of the world. That should have been their main concern. They were supposed to be the religious leaders of a nation. But instead of waking up by that fact that he had risen Lazarus from the dead, they convened a council, and they were worried. They were trying to protect what they said was theirs, which, by the way, wasn't theirs in the first place. The nation belonged to God. The people belonged to God. But here's the deal. The Sadducees, who largely made up the chief priests, didn't believe in the resurrection. Theologically, they did not hold to that position. They did not believe that God raised people from the dead. It's very inconvenient when your theological position is, I don't believe in the resurrection, and a resurrected dude is walking around the city. Very inconvenient. In fact, you have one of two options when that happens. You either change your theological position, or you try to get rid of the evidence. You know what they did? They chose the latter. Instead of realizing that Lazarus was a living testimony that their theology was wrong, and that Jesus had to be the Messiah, they tried to get rid of the evidence. They tried to convene a council, and you're going to see that they try to kill Jesus, and they're going to try to kill Lazarus. Because it was inconvenient for him to be walking around the city giving witness to the resurrection. It is very hard for people to admit they're wrong. Maybe you're in that company of people. I think we all can wrestle with that. How many of you remember Happy Days, the Fonz? How many of you remember it? All right, thank you. Appreciate that. Anyway, the Fonz, you remember he could never say he was wrong. So, or he was sorry. So he always, you know, the word, I was, I was, and he couldn't get it out. You see, when you have believed something for a long time, and then you're proven wrong by the evidence, it's hard to admit that you've been wrong. But all they had to do is say, we're wrong. Jesus, can we talk to you about who you are? We want to know more. We want to know if this indeed is the power of God in you. But they just wouldn't believe. They went away and they convened a council and they got worried about their positions. 
If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. That's a good thing, especially if he's the Messiah, but not to them. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, 49, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being, a high, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And you might be thinking, but he was bankrupt and he probably wasn't even a believer in God. Probably not. But remember, God used a donkey in the Old Testament. So I think he can use an unredeemed high priest. And in fact, he became a vehicle for that prophecy. And not only for the nation only, but he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is what John says. He's going to bring all the people that are his to himself. And so from that day on, 1153 of John, they plan together to kill him. Now, if you're a note taker, he is the lamb rejected. Number one, he's the lamb rejected. If anybody's back at the booth, can you turn off the smoke machine? Anybody can hear my voice and knows how to do that? Thank you. I, I like to be considered on fire up here, but, uh, you know, smoke's a little distracting. Anyway, so there he is coming into Jerusalem, showing who he is, but they, they would not accept the testimony. They just couldn't believe. He's the lamb rejected. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away, 54, from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up to Jerusalem, 55, out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Now, that's the introduction to this Passover week. The religious leaders were looking around to try to destroy Jesus. And they told people, spies throughout the city, if you see him, almost like Herod said to the Magi, then let us know. Not that we might worship him, but that we might seize him. But remember, Jesus was on God's timeline, and nothing was going to happen outside of God the Father's will. And there, John adds now, six days before the Passover, he comes to this place called Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There's the setting of the Passover season, when all these Jews would come from all over the place, and this would lead us into what's called Lamb Selection Day. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on either a Sunday or a Monday, depending on what you believe about the chronology, he rode in on Lamb Selection Day. And I want you to turn to the book of Exodus, the second book of your Bible, and here's what God said through Moses to the people of Israel as they remembered their liberation from Egypt. Remember, the Passover is really about God passing over Egypt and freeing his people. It was the final plague. It was the death of the firstborn. And the only way that you could be protected from the Lord who passed over Egypt that night is if you had what? The blood of the lamb on your door. And it, God said, if I see the blood, I will not judge that household. 
But if I don't see the blood, someone's going to die. The second coming of Jesus Christ, which is coming in our future, is a second Passover. It's another Passover, and God is going to come again. Jesus is coming again with the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Think of the tomb of Lazarus. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Everybody who has the blood of the Lamb applied to their house or their life, if you will, will not be judged by the Lord. They will be rescued, taken into the promised land, if you will. But those who do not have the blood, those who have not applied the blood of the Lamb to their lives, will be judged by God Almighty. And Jesus will be the judge. He has come. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, way back in the book of Exodus, as they were uh, leaving out of Egypt, here's what the Lord said. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is Exodus 12. Look at verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, that is the month of Nisan or Abib, uh, they are each to take one to take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So each house had a lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now notice, the lamb is selected on the 10th, lamb selection day. That's Exodus 12.3. And kept in each household till the 14th. So if you want to just think of it this way, Lamb Selection Day hap happened on a Monday. It may have been a Sunday. That's debated, and I won't get into that right now. And then the people, each household had a lamb and kept it in the house the whole week until Friday, until the actual Passover. Now they say as you took the lamb into your house, the lamb would almost become like a pet. And the lamb had to be inspected. It had to be without spot or blemish, and then you took it into your household. And as you got to know the lamb a little bit better, let's just say it hung out with your family, all of a sudden on Friday you had to kill that lamb. Imagine how much more difficult it would be to get to know the lamb and then realize that you had to sacrifice the lamb. You had to kill the lamb on Friday of Passover week. And this was purposeful to get the people familiar with that, that sacrificial animal. Jesus, when he rides into Jerusalem, rides in on Lamb Selection Day. And he spends the whole week in Jerusalem, spending time with the people, healing people, speaking words. People were hanging on his every word. They got to know the Lamb during Passover week, and then he died on that Friday. And so they were to kill the Lamb, notice, six, you shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So that's when the sun is going down, literally Deuteronomy 16, 6. According to Josephus, it was customary in his day to slay the lamb at guess what time? Three in the afternoon. When Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that he gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit at what time? Three in the afternoon. Now get this. There's over two million people in the city. There's even a lamb taken into the temple area for the nation. 
And at three in the afternoon, everybody was killing their lambs, including the high priest, the lamb for the nation. And that's when the lamb of God dies, when all the other lambs of the nation is dying. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world dies for the people. He dies for you and for me. He's fulfilling the Passover imagery. He is, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb. He is your Passover lamb and my lamb. He's the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. He literally takes it away. That's what forgiveness means. To take your sin away as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Moreover, you are to take seven, some of the blood, and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel. You can imagine someone painting the blood. They would do each doorpost, and they would put it on the top. And some have seen the sign of the cross there as you paint blood on each side of your door and then on the top of the door. And in Jewish thought, covenants were made at the, excuse me, at the threshold of homes. When you carry your bride over the threshold, it's a sign of a covenant. And there, God says, anybody who's behind that door, behind the blood of my son, is the ultimate fulfillment, will be saved. And so notice in verse 12, it says, For I will go through the land, Exodus 12, 12, of Egypt on that night. God says, I'm going to go through the land, and I will, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. That's who it was really against. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood, 13, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague or judgment will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you turn to the Gospel of John, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, long anticipated by many. And it's approaching this time frame. Jesus is there for the Passover season beginning the week really with Lamb Selection Day. He is the Lamb rejected. He is the Lamb selected. And so he shows up six days before the Passover. They made him supper. Uh, Martha was serving, John 12, 2. Lazarus was there reclining at the table with him. Can you imagine how many people probably want to interview Lazarus? <laughs> Dude! You were dead for four days. Where were you? What happened? What did you see? And what was it like when you returned back into your body? And what did people's eyes look like when you walked out of the tomb? Dude, 20 minutes. That's all I want. Can you imagine how popular Lazarus must have been? A guy that was dead for four days. Remember that even the sisters were afraid that the tomb be open because, as the King James puts it, by this time, Lord, he stinketh. That's what the Bible says, literally in the King James. I'm afraid to open the tomb. And Lazarus now was full of life, touched by the Messiah. Now, there Jesus is, John 12, 9. A great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests, largely Sadducees, as I mentioned, took counsel that they might what? John 12, 10. They wanted to kill Lazarus too. Let's see, what do we do? Well, we can't believe in Jesus. That would be bad for our career. So I'll tell you what. We're going to kill Jesus and Lazarus. 
See, it is easier for some people to bury the evidence than to believe. And there are a lot of people today in our world who simply will not believe despite the evidence. It's easy to get, easier to get rid of the evidence. And do you know, for 2,000 years of church history, sadly, that's what a lot of the world has tried to do. Try to destroy the evidence. Kill the Christians. Persecute the people of God. They did it to the Lord. They've done it. They did it to the Lord's inner circle, his disciples, and they've really done it for 2,000 years. They just don't want to hear us. They don't want to see us. They'd rather just dismiss of us. Have you noticed? That's how the world is. They don't want to hear from the Christians. They've categorized us in such a way that they would like to eliminate our voice, eliminate our perspective. They, they imply that, oh, we're not really thinking people. Oh, I beg to differ. I think we're thinking the most clearly of all the people walking on the planet. It amazes me how people in high places can't even figure out how to deal with babies that are born into the world. They can't even figure that one out. And we're going to trust them with the rest of the stuff? Well, Jesus is riding in, and they want to kill him. They want to kill Lazarus because he and Jesus are both a double whammy, living proof that they're wrong. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews, 1211, were going away. Going away from the religious rules and the weight of all that they had put on the backs of the people, and they were believing in Jesus. Let me just say this to you. Some of you may have to leave religion to find Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying all religion is bad. Religion in its truest form will lead you to God. But some religion, all it does is put works on your back and moves you away from God. And that's what Israel was. When Jesus arrived, they were a land in darkness, a land who hadn't heard from a prophet in some 400 years, a land under Roman occupation, a land, a land in desperate need of the Lamb of God. And that is America. Right now, a land who is in desperate need of the living God. Do you agree? We need to allow Jesus Christ to come back into a central role in this country and not be embarrassed of the gospel. Now, on the next day, John 12, 12, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, there they were excited. Leviticus 23 tells us more about this feast of Passover. It tells us that all the able-bodied people were to gather, and there they were. There's a great multitude, and Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. For those of you who have been to Jerusalem and those of you who have it on your bucket list, this is one of the uh, beautiful parts about the tour is you're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So you're over here. The Temple Mount is here. And you get, you get to come down what's called the Palm Sunday Trail. And basically this is how it works. You're on a, the slope of the Mount of Olives. And when you look across the Kidron Valley, there is what's David's old city and called the Temple Mount. And so you go down this path, and you can kind of follow what Jesus did, and then you go up into Jerusalem. And there Jesus was, and he looked at the city of Jerusalem. And what was the city of Jerusalem? It was a city that God had said, I will write my name there forever. It's a city where on Mount Moriah, there was Abraham, uh, and he was willing to sacrifice Isaac some 2,000 year, years before. It was the city that David had set up at his, as his capital and danced before the Lord and celebrated the arrival of the ark. 
But it was a city that became steeped in idolatry. It was a city where the priests, even in the temple, were doing corrupt things. They had corrupted themselves. It's a city that became Ichabod, where the Spirit of the Lord left them. It's a city where finally God had had so much of it, enough was enough, that he took a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar from a land called Babylon and brought him down to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And they leveled Jerusalem to the ground. The city that God loved had become a city that Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and you reject those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were what? You were unwilling. You would not receive me. And the city became steeped in Uh, idolatry and rejection of God and became corrupted and God destroyed the city. And here's a question that one must ask. Why? Why does he arrive at a city that's rejected him? Why does he come again to a people that have largely said, no, we don't want you, God. We're going to do things our own way because God is a God of love. And it is amazing that he is willing to arrive at my door or your life, or any of us for that matter. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. God's love is amazing. Look at the people that he comes to who are largely rejecting him, and yet he loves them. And the people took the branches, 12, 13 of John, of the palm trees, the date palms, which are all over that area even today, and they went out to meet him. And they began to cry out, Hosanna, that's a Hebrew word which means save now or uh, Lord save I pray. And they sang or spoke, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, he is the Lamb celebrated. The people are quoting the Hallel Psalm of Psalm 118, sung during many of the festivals, tabernacles, and Passover. And they are acclaiming Jesus as the arrived Messiah. People were celebrating. Can you imagine how excited you must have been? There you are in the crowd. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now he's coming in and people are waving the palms. Now you have the palm here. Everybody got your palm. These are palm branches made in the form of a cross. And so when Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, people began to wave the palm. They, they had something called a lulav. It was three different plants, and it included a myrtle and a willow. And they would wave it like this, almost like if you were at a parade and people were waving the flag. Everybody wave, wave your palm right now, just so I can see that you're still awake. Praise the Lord. This is what they would do. And so they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you think that the people who waved the palms that day thought that the week would end with a cross? No, many of them were looking for a military deliverer. They were under Roman occupation and they hated it. They hated that the dreaded Romans were over their nation and somehow were impinging on their freedom. This is the Holy Land. Those pagans should not be here. And so when Jesus came, many of the people saw in him that he's the Messiah. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. He's going to kick out the pagans. He's going to reestablish the Davidic throne. Everything's good. They couldn't imagine, many of them, that that week would end in a cross. Ray Vanderlaan and other historians have pointed out 
that to wave what they waved was to a uh, Jew at this time almost like waving the American flag. It was like waving the stars and stripes. Do you guys remember after 9-11 happened, the tragedy of 9-11? I was pastoring in the city at that time, and church attendance swelled right after 9-11. And people knew where to run. They ran back to the churches. They ran back to God, which is a good thing. But you know how long that lasted? About a month. And then all of a sudden, people went back to their normal lives. See, this is what we tend to do. And the, the mission that Jesus was on was not to deal with Rome. He had come to deal with the twin enemies of what? Sin and death. That's why he had come. He had come to bear our sins and our sorrows at the cross. And so the people are saying, Hosanna. They're calling him the king of Israel. Palm branches or date palms were abundant in Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles, they were used. Holding in one's hand something called the lulav, a palm with a myrtle and a willow branch on either side of it, was the divine commandment. A palm design ornamented the walls of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6.29. Palm branches were carried by the Jews who celebrated Simon's entry into Jerusalem at the climax of the Maccabean revolt to get the, uh, the Greeks out of Israel earlier. In time, the palm became a symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. Coins that were minted at this time had the palm branch on them as their nationalistic symbol. But did the people understand why Jesus had come? They were saying, save us, save us now. But the question is, save us from what? What do you think you need to be saved from? Do you think that most people walking around our world today know that they need to be saved from their sin and from judgment? That's why Jesus is coming. He's going to die on an awful death instrument, not because he's guilty of anything, but because he's going to take our punishment. He's going to take the wrath of God. And John's truncated version of what happens next says Jesus finding a young donkey. We know the disciples found it, and uh, Jesus had instructed them, sat on it, as it is written. And here's what the Bible says, John 12, 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's another name for the city or, to, or the citadel of Jerusalem. Behold, look, your king is coming. He is what? He is seated on a donkey's colt. Right in your Bible there. Zechariah 9.9, he's the lamb predicted. You see, Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah. And if you had gone to Sabbath school, and maybe you got caught up in, you know, oh, Jesus could be the Messiah. Maybe you saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and now you see him on a colt, the foal of, the, of, the, of a donkey. All of a sudden, if you start to piece it together, you go, whoa, wait a minute now. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which reads this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is described in Isaiah 53, 7 as like a lamb led to the slaughter. And can you see it? He is God's lamb. He is God the Father's lamb and our lamb come to rescue us from sin and death. There he rides. And Luke tells us something interesting. 
that when he was making the procession down the Mount of Olives, he looked over the city, and do you know what he did? Amidst all the cheers and all the celebration, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the king of Israel. You know what he did? He cried. He looked over the city, and he wept. Does that not stagger you? Why would a human being do such a thing? Why would he cry in the midst of celebration and people lauding him? But then he sees the future. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say because this is so incredibly huge. He predicts the fall of Jerusalem some 40 years later. It's recorded in Luke's gospel. And he begins to give details about what's going to happen in 70 A.D. when those same Romans destroy Jerusalem for a second time. And do you know, from that point, 70 A.D. until 1948, the Jews were out of the land and did not exist really as a nation. And do you know what year they recaptured Jerusalem, that fallen city that fell in 70 A.D.? 1967. Folks, do you see? Prophecy is being fulfilled in front of our eyes. They're there. Have you seen now the, the um, what's it called, the United States Embassy being moved to that area? Have you heard the discussion about the Gaza Strip and how uh, Trump was saying, hey, it's still going to be under Israeli control and how the Russians have begun to chirp about that? And say that maybe they could even see that as an act of war? Woo-wee. Somebody says, how close are we to the return of Jesus Christ? I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was rather quick. Because you can see some things falling into place. Now, we have to be careful, right? It could be 10 years. It could be another 1,000 years. We don't know. But we should be keeping our eyes open. This is not a time to be messing around with sin. This is a time to prepare your heart for the Lord. And so there he comes. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. The people are singing to him. He cries over the city. These things his disciples, 16, did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. They were spreading the word about Jesus. Can you imagine being one of those people? Somebody is next to you waving the palm and you say, hey, by the way, you see that guy? He raised him from the dead four days ago and I saw it. Can you imagine how excited people were? This is not, hey, I'm going to go back to work on Monday and, you know, go back to my normal routine. This is life-changing stuff. And by the way, you've heard pastors say at the end of the week, the people of that same crowd who said Hosanna, then later that week said crucify him. I'm not sure. I think we should be careful. I don't think it was all the people. I think a lot of people who loved him and believed in him were silenced that day. It was the religious leaders in the crowd that got the people to ask for Barabbas. It was the larger crowd, if you will, that was in the city for the Passover. I'm not sure the people who saw Lazarus rise from the dead turned on Jesus. But perhaps some of them did. 
You see, it's for lesser things that a lot of people have turned on the Lord, right? Even Peter ends up denying the Lord. We can see miracles. We can watch God work in our life, but it doesn't mean we're always going to be true, and he's just so gracious to us. And so here's what happens. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. There were people in the streets talking about Lazarus. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. We've made no progress in stopping him, says the religious elite. We can't wait any longer. We must stop him now. See the world there? That's not the whole world, but it's the idea of the Jewish world here. And it's going to include Gentiles in a moment. Notice, now there were certain geeks, I mean Greeks, this is uh, the arrival of the geek squad. Just uh, make note of that here. Um, they arrive and they, and they get out of the van and they say, hey, we, we want to see Jesus too. And we can fix your computer if you want. We're part of the geek squad. Right? So somebody at first service heard that weak attempt at humor and they said, you know what kind of van it was or what kind of car it was? It was a Honda because they were all of one accord. I promised to use that at second service. And so there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship. Maybe they were converts to Judaism. Maybe they were like Cornelius, a God-fearer. And they had come up for the Feast of Passover too. So there were Gentiles there as well. And these therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, how many of you are not Jewish in the room? Raise up your hand. You're not Jewish. Okay? These are your first ancestors, loosely speaking. Gentiles coming to ask about the Messiah, there for the Passover. You see, you've been grafted in to the roots of Israel. That's why you should be here Wednesday night to hear more about the Passover and the Seder. Because this is our faith. It's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. See the end of uh, verse 21. I understand that pulpits of old used to have these words engraved on the pulpit where only the pastor could see it. As a reminder to the pastor, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Amen. The role of every pastor is to proclaim Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of the sermon. Not something else, but Jesus. And they said, we want to see him too. You see, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He brings Jew and Gentile together into one people. And he saves us by the cross. And Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus kept saying, my hour is not yet. Now my hour has come. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. One writer says, when you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, you cannot see what's in it. Quite literally, each grain contains, if it's good seed, a million similar offspring. In planting season, a grain is cast forth into the ground as if in a tomb. Then it dies, in quotes. It sets forth from its encasement 
and becomes a resurrection plant. And its many grains are resurrection fruit. Jesus was telling the crowd that he would fulfill his kingly role by dying and therefore by reproducing his life in many others. Is his life in you? Have you met him? Have you experienced that resurrection power, that life? That's what he's come to give us and help us to spread. And a couple verses were done, but here's what he says. He says, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. George Mueller, who did some incredible things for orphans and children, he exercised great influence for God. Someone asked George Mueller, what's been the secret of your life? Mueller hung his head and said, quote, there was a day when I died. Then he bent lower and said, I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world and its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. And I began to live for Christ. That's when your life changes. When you worry more about what Jesus thinks than anybody else thinks. When you know where you're going and why. And you're willing even to die for the greatest cause. Billy Graham tells the story of a time when Albert Einstein was going on a train to an out-of-town engagement. The conductor stopped by to punch Einstein's ticket. The great scientist, preoccupied with his work, with great embarrassment, rummaged through his coat pockets and briefcase to no avail. He couldn't find his ticket. The conductor said, we all know who you are, Dr. Einstein. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Everything's okay. The conductor walked uh, on down the aisle, punching other tickets. Before he moved to the next car, he looked back and saw Dr. Einstein down on his hands and knees, looking under his seat, trying to find his ticket. He came back and gently said to the doctor, please, sir, don't worry about it. We know who you are. Einstein looked up and said, I, too, know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. That's why I need my ticket. I know who I am. I just don't know where I'm going. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. But here's the good news. But people will come to the Father through me. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. 26. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, the Lord says, those who honor me, I will honor. And this is an amazing verse, and I'm going to leave you with this. The Bible says that the ones who serve Christ, God the Father will honor you. Whose honor do you want? I want God the Father to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want Jesus to say, me, say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. We have a world to reach. We have work to do. A child was in a meeting, holiness revival meeting in New York. Uh, it seems a certain missionary home on leave was shopping for a globe of the world to take back to her mission station. Clerk showed her a reasonably priced globe and another one with a light bulb inside. 
this is nicer, the clerk said, pointing to the illuminated globe of the world. But of course, a lighted world costs more. Close quote. Doesn't it? It means we're going to have to get busy. And we're going to say, Lord, I want to use my life to reach others. This week, you're going to have an opportunity like no other week for a Christian in Southern California. People are going to be open to going to church. And if you give them an invitation, the stats are saying that nine out of every ten people you invite are going to come. They're going to say yes to your invitation. And this is the minimal way that we can be witnessing to our friends and family to try to get them to a service, to hear the good news of Christ. Let's pray that the Lord gives us opportunities. Father, thank you so much for every precious soul that's here. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the Lamb of God, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Save now, we pray. Thank you that you came to save. You were the Lamb selected, the Lamb predicted, the Lamb rejected. During that week, you were the Lamb inspected. They asked you many questions. They brought you issues of taxes and other things, and you were without spot or blemish. And then you were the lamb crucified. But we know, Lord, that the week doesn't end that way because a new day dawns, and you are the lamb risen. And we are so grateful that you rose from the dead, proving once again who you are. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Maybe you didn't understand who he was or is. Maybe you've been away for a while. Maybe you've been under the weight of false religion. Maybe you have been away because of your own sin. Now's the time to get right with him. Now's the time to see him riding into your life. And all you have to do is say, Hosanna, save me, Lord. Save me now. And if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But you must call upon him. You must believe in him. Something like this. Lord Jesus, save me. Pray it if it's you. Thank you that you rode in to rescue us on that day on Palm Sunday. Thank you that you came to rescue me from sin and death. I put my trust in you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Please save me. Use my life as a witness to others of the life that you give. And I ask that you would just Move in my life and use me for your glory. Help me to serve you and honor you, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.